Hello and welcome to The Wild About Us with John Riven and Fergus Keeling. I first met Fergus at the BBC's Natural History Unit in Bristol over 30 years ago and we became lifelong friends. Fergus co-presented the Natural History programme for Radio 4 and I was one of the producers. Among our qualifications was that Fergus had done a PhD in gerbils and I on pink-footed tarantulas. Now, in this podcast, The Wild About Us, we're going to explore nature again, how it's still all around us, and how we're part of it. And where better to start than with our best friend, the dog, who's a reminder of how we've only recently come out of the wild ourselves. Fergus begins by telling me off about missing our first recording. You were busy... uh... Uh, mowing the lawn yesterday and forgot all about me. I hope you you feel suitably chastised. Yes, I feel bad. I did. I felt bad at (laughs) the time. When did you discover it? Well, you even rang, I think, during it because I went, I I thought I'd heard the phone. I dashed into the house and then I didn't recognise the number and I thought, oh, it's one of those calls. I've just carried on doing it. (laughs) Um, So listen, I, uh, I, uh, it's, it's, I'm very optimistic about this now, I have to say, you know, in terms of what we're going to do and how we work together. Yes, I think this could be revolutionary, but, um, you know, let's take it a stage at a time and, and um, go for it. Um, I mean, you know, why would anyone want to listen to us? But who knows? I mean, it's pretty harmless, really, isn't it? I mean, yes. I think the idea of, we could start talking about dogs, actually. What I'm really interested in is to get into their mind, you know, the idea mm-hmm. that you can know, um, well, you can imagine yourself as a dog. Yes. I, I get into the doghouse quite often, so that helps. Dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the thing that uh, I'd like to discuss and speculate, because I haven't seen it written anywhere, is uh, how man and dog got together and formed the relationship that they have way, way back. Obviously, the dog came from the wolf. And I think I had speculated on a piece of paper to you that um, it's hardly surprising that packs of wolves and hunter-gatherer humans would keep turning up in the same arena because they'd probably be chasing the the same prey uh, deer, for want of a better prey item, so that they would come in contact a lot. Um, How then did they start to cooperate or how did man tame the wolf? Yeah, it's good. Um, so I, I think people underestimate how domestic animals have helped us become the being that we are. You know, uh, humans uh, were, there's only about 2 million of us, uh, maybe uh, 20,000 years ago, and now there's nearly 7 billion. And the idea that we expanded so much, we tend to think is all our own doing, but actually it may well have a lot to do with some of the animals we befriended, and the dog was the first. Uh, yeah. So really revolutionary. What do you think, though? What, as a biologist, what is your, um, you know, your best educated guess as to how the two of them uh, formed the relationship that they did way back then? Well, there's um, a paper on gelada baboons, which are those lovely baboons which you find in Ethiopia, um, with big red chests on the males and big hairy crests, and they live in groups of several hundred. But um, I think there's evidence that wolves are amongst them and that there's some cooperative hunting going on. And there is a clue that it kind of happens accidentally. Between baboons and the wolf. Yeah. And as time goes on, it becomes more and more cooperative. Because I've read somewhere that the 
human uh, brain and its evolution depended in hunter-gatherers quite heavily on the contents of marrowbone. I don't know if you've ever seen that or no. read that. Uh, uh, it was about the protein and the nutrient and the enrichment from marrow bones and the fact that man uh, benefited from scavenging. So you could imagine a wolf pack chasing down a deer. And by the time humans um, came upon the scene, a lot of the meat would have been eaten. But if you have enough humans around and they drive the wolves off, then the, the humans would definitely benefit from the bones and the marrow in the bones. And I think the corollary is true that if uh, a human or a couple of humans had captured a deer and were bringing it back to their their dwelling place for their family to eat, a pack of wolves would have been able to take it off them. Uh, and so therefore you, you maybe see the start of interaction between humans and wolves. What is the next step after that? Well, you know, we, we're, we're not around, we don't know what happened, but uh, uh, as we are so kind of, uh, uh, what is the word, taken with small puppies, uh, if you watch the reaction of humans, especially small children to puppies, uh, it's, it's, it's something that seems almost innate, and perhaps uh, puppies became part of the whole start of the relationship between uh, humans and, and wolves, who knows? But it certainly yeah, is something think, that has become very successful. If you look at um, a puppy, it, it, it's pleading, isn't it? it? It looks at you and it's trying to make a connection with the human. But don't forget, we're talking about a very evolved line of dogs, you know. Uh, but one theory I heard was that when we killed the wolves, because we, it, a group of humans with spears would, would out, outdo wolves any day, and uh, they would kill the adults, perhaps, as you say, get them off that meal. Um, but there might be some puppies amongst that group, and the, the only way that puppy's going to survive is if it looks cute and and, yes. uh, and the humans um, pick it up. And certainly it seems to be the case. There's the, the evidence for the oldest dog bones is about 35,000 years ago, um, and dogs and wolves, present-day wolves, have a common ancestor, but the present-day wolf is not an ancestor of our dog. They both have a common ancestor, which has now become extinct. It was called something like the grey wolf. And uh, so 35,000 years ago, uh, they found bones, uh, but they didn't have necessarily an association with humans. The first graves, um, the first one is about 14,000 years ago in Germany. There's several sites near Bonn and on the border with Switzerland. And uh, there's evidence that their young, the young dog bones that they found there had suffered some a serious disease like distemper, which is not survivable unless... Uh, it's given water and cared for uh, when it's ill. And that is evidence that it is a um, domestic dog, a pet, that it was loved. And, That's uh, intriguing. It is intriguing. And then uh, you go in North America, there's, um, there's another uh, burial of a dog who's quite clearly given a grave uh, next to humans. Um, in Siberia, there's evidence for huskies being used um, about 9,000 years ago as sled dogs. Um, and then actually in Newgrange, which is near you, I think, the, yes. um, um, it's, um, they found a DNA from a domestic line, which is very similar to our dogs, four and a half thousand years ago in bones at Newgrange. I don't know about that site. Do you know that site? Yes, Newgrange was an ancient burial site from the Neolithic period. So uh, you're talking four or five thousand uh, years ago, uh, which was also around the time 
where the early farmers were starting to uh, domesticate animals in Ireland. So that's interesting that around that time, not only were they possibly domesticating animals and becoming farmers, but also domesticating dogs. And actually, there's quite a lot of controversy amongst all the scientists as to whether there were two lines of dogs, one from the east, one from the west, uh, and that they interbred or that one died out. So there's a lot of uh, discussion and there isn't a definitive answer at the moment. One of the issues is that they use this thing where they, they analyze the mutations with the DNA. And by doing that, you can sort of go back in time because if you know the rate of mutation, you can go back to where the ancestral dog was. But the trouble is that dogs breed, and uh, they interbreed with each other with different breeds, they back again with the wolf. And so all that uh, genetic information is muddled in dogs. So they're one of the most difficult things to find the uh, true origin of. Um, so the case is still out, really. But the point is that they eventually uh, came to be with us, and, and that was a benefit to us and the dog. Uh, the dog also gained characteristics from us. It read, it reads our face. A dog will read your face when when uh, it, it looks at you. Um, well, the one thing I know is that when we look at each other, there's a there's a raising of the eyebrows, a very f uh, small raising of the eyebrows for a fraction of a second, and other human beings realise that as a as a uh, sign of recognition. Mm -hmm. The only other animal to do that is a dog. It looks at us and it also sees that sign of recognition. Um, I've so, heard. I've I've also read, John, that the dog is the only other animal that will make eye contact with us and maintain eye contact, which is essentially what you're saying. So that yes. they are they're engaging in nonverbal communication yes. with us. God, I don't engage with eye contact with a lot of people. <laughs> 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 but yes, I, I know. So they take their guide from us. Um, and of course, they've given us things as well, because in those ancient days, to have an alarm call if another tribe was attacking you or a predator um, would have been fantastically useful. And as anybody knows who's got a dog, they start barking way before you've heard anything, you know. Um, and then, of course, their sense of smell, you know. So I think we've both given each other things, the dog to us and we to the dog. So our idea, um, given that, this discussion that we're having uh, could be played uh, two years down the line when we've become so famous for our new podcast series, uh, is to uh, get some science around how the relationship started between, between dog and man or humans. Um, but to take that up to the present day and take a number of uh, different breeds of dogs and imagine what it is that they are thinking. Is that your idea? Well, sort of, yeah. I mean, I'd like to get into the mind of the dog, and I think that they they gather intelligence from us, and they have evolved intelligence uh, with us. Uh, so, for instance, to take one extreme, you get this dog called Chaser, which was um, trained by a psychologist um, called John Pilly, and um, of all places in uh, Wofford University, which is in North Carolina, um, and. Uh, Literally spelled Woof, W-O-O-F. Yeah, yeah, W-O-O-F. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it rightly. rightly. <laughs> That's good. I like that. So he, he's a emeritus uh, professor, and he's written a book about um, Chaser. Chaser, you might have seen on, on telly as well, um, can uh, tell um, – he uses cuddly toys. He's got a 1,000 cuddly toys, and John can ask him uh, which of those cuddly toys to get. So he says, go and get me chicken, and, and he gets the cuddly toy that's like a chicken. 
and mm-hmm. you know it goes on and on and on and he and and he gets it right every time he's got one called inky which is an octopus and he goes and gets inky the octopus when he's asked chaser does and then they did another thing which is even more intriguing they put a, a toy which chaser hadn't seen before and uh they called it of all things darwin which it was like a little hairy man and they called uh, and they and chaser had never seen darwin and and they put darwin down on the ground with all the other things the chickens and the teddy bears and all the other things and they said chaser go and get darwin and chaser's confused at first but goes and looks at all these other things and um doesn't get it then said no get darwin get darwin and chaser goes back and um lo and behold he picks up the uh, the the man-shaped um toy um and brings it uh, and so in other words he's he's learnt that it it's not one of the ones he knows it's it so therefore it must be the one he doesn't know that's and intriguing it's amazing so it, it shows you what the capacity of um a dog's brain is which is which is good it's huge and it even understands some of our language though goodness knows how you know it, it, it won't be obviously in english <laughs> certainly not for that pale dog <laughs> but uh, you know um uh it's it's fantastic isn't it and it you know it makes me when i go for a, a walk with the dog i can see you know it's looking at a different world than i am it's kind of smelling every junction often where the paths are where they've marked their scent through the urine um you know and other dogs and it, it genuinely seems interested as to what other dog was there and what signals it, it was saying i mean it must be as clear as day it's probably some sort of dog like dog graffiti you know when they yeah, and um, they can smell it, and smell is so so important to them. Well, of course. So, for the basis of uh, marking your territory, for finding a female that would be an estrus, uh, for asserting dominance, or uh, to, just trying to decide the dominance of a dog that's ahead of you, given, of course, that they are pack animals and lived in uh, in packs, although as humans what we've done is we've removed them from the pack essentially and and made them you know lone animals uh they've i guess become part of the the human pack uh, which is including us and uh i guess in most cases we become the dominant of the of the pack which is you know based on one or two people or just the dog and and its owner although i've noticed as my dog gets older it's starting to become more dominant <laughs> I'm becoming more, <laughs> more submissive. <clears throat> and how does that manifest? Well, it sleeps on our bed now. It had an it had an illness. It had an illness, and it was it had to be um, nurtured, you know, to back to health. And and during that time, it had to be sort of looked after during the night and things. And um, so, of course, now it, it thinks that that's normal. <laughs> and so, and of course, you know, we're soft touches as well. You know. I think that's what it is that this relationship between man and dog was a, a story of soft touch. You know, the dog took at every stage it could, you know, and said, oh, come on, you can't go back now. <laughs> mm. But did, did you not uh, try and get it out of the habit of sleeping in the bed when it was better? Well, it doesn't sleep in the bed, <laughs> although it probably would if it wanted to, uh, if it could. Mm. Um, no, uh, we didn't in the end. I think we felt uh, we you trouble you feel an empathy and an emotion for dogs and obviously you know that's what the that intriguing evidence is from stone age times that that they did even then you know and um you know it's one of the family it becomes one of the family doesn't it although the difference between it sleeping in your bed now and a dog sleeping next to you in a cave 
20, 30,000 years ago, if that happened, uh, it'd be quite a useful warm mammal to uh, lie next to. Yes, but did they even let it lie next to them on a summer night? Hmm. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. They were a bit tougher then. Yeah, they didn't actually, yeah. a lot of cave people didn't live in caves, by the way. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, where does this leave us? Oh, we were going to go back to the idea, weren't we? Well, I'm kind of intrigued to get into the mind of that. You know, it, you know is um, smelling to that extent like us seeing colour, you know, or words and floating in the air? It is something akin to that. We'll never be able to get into its mind, but I'm always interested in other animals' minds and, and how how they're skewed to to some sense usually and, and, and a different way of life, and yet they're living in the same place as we are. Well, I can't help thinking and speculating that, that the human sense of smell is practically so vestigial now that as to be almost worthless compared to uh, that, that of other mammals which rely on it so heavily. So if you think of something like bears, which can smell things miles off, or even fishes, large fishes like sharks, which can sense and smell, in inverted commas, blood, you know, miles off. Our sense of smell, you know, we can we can smell something that's going on in the kitchen, but we we just don't we just don't rely on it really. Um, but if you think of something like a dog walking down the street, when I'm walking with my dog, he he almost stops looking and just the sense of smell completely takes over that entire journey. Also, the way they blow air backwards and forwards over the nasal passages. Yeah, I was. Uh, my son picked up a sheep's skull the other day, and I was just looking uh, up the nose of it, as you do. Um, and uh, there's lots of little uh, folds in in it. And so I wonder, if even sheep have got a good sense of smell. I bet you there's a big surface area inside the nose of a of a dog. Um, mm -hmm. I know sharks have as well. Sharks have got a massive area inside their nose. So anything, you know, it makes sense, doesn't it? So they basically got the apparatus to do it. So how worried or not are you about us anthropomorphizing potentially uh, in the minds of dogs and how they breed? And did you like the script that I wrote and think that there's potential in that? Or is that is that veering off what it is you um, I, originally I'm thought? All, I'm not at all worried about anthropomorphism. I think it's um, another type of imagination, really. And, and it helps you understand, if it helps you understand what a dog's like, especially if it's based on some science, that could actually be more illustrative than you know just bold facts which you don't remember. Yes, um, I mean the interesting the interesting thing about looking up the breed of a dog, which you can do now on the on the internet <coughs> or you Wikipedia a dog breed. It's very interesting that they start to talk about. Well, first of all, they talk about the characteristics of the dog, what it physically looks like. Then they talk about its character and personality, um, the way you would talk about the character and personality of an old friend. And uh, dog breeders now are very specific, so they can say it's aggressive or it's uh, it's passive or it is a humorous uh, personality yeah. or it is, or as you say, stubborn or it is good with children or it's totally unsuitable to be uh, in a family with children. It, it's astonishing the way really the, the breed of the dog has evolved to suit us. And of course, we have got directly involved in breeding for certain characteristics that we like.
Well, we bre we've bred it in, hasn't it? It happens pretty quickly, like Darwin's pigeons, you know, the um, special f fancy pigeons that people breed. And, and, and as soon as people go for different traits, then very quickly you get those things. And, and, and as you say, you know, maybe um, stubbornness is, is a gun dog. You know, it, it stubbornly stays with the bird that, it, that its master has killed or something. Um, you know, there's actual traits that are needed in those different dogs. And we've sort of made them more soppy domestic pets, but they still have those traits. Mm. Tell me about the dogs in your life. What, what, what are the, you had Peanut. Was Peanut your first dog? No. Uh, so my brother, John, um, was uh, in his early days, his father-in-law was a hunter and kept pointers. So they would go out and hunt with pointers and spaniels. And so my brother, John, um, just before he left the house and got married, he brought home uh, a pointer puppy, uh, which I fell in love with. She was called Belle, beautiful, creamy white with, with brown uh, uh, patches. And uh, she was an English pointer and she was an absolutely stunning dog. And of course, he then got married and went off and I was broken hearted. So he presented me with a mongrel uh, half pointer, half Labrador. Uh, so my first dog was called Reb um, and uh, we were good companions. I think, I think though, he was our family pet. So I then left home and went off to university uh, and missed my dog and, and saw an ad in the paper for a lady who was becoming quite infirm and she needed a dog walker. So I started to walk her four dogs every Sunday around the woods in Reading. Uh, and one day I, she had a couple of Cocker Spaniels and a couple of Labradors. And one day I arrived up at her house and walked up the garden. She lived in a beautiful part of, of the woods and um, walked up the garden and this absolutely gorgeous young black, um, looked like a sleek black Labrador puppy with a white fleck on her chest, just ambled up the garden and rolled over onto her back and put the four paws up, as, as you know they do, and looked up at me. And it was almost love at first sight, I think is how, how I would describe it. And mm. it turns out that, that uh, she was called Peanut, very unusual name for a dog. And Peanut uh, was being kept by this lady, Mrs. B, uh, because her nephew owned it and he'd had a nervous breakdown and he couldn't look after Peanut anymore. anymore. So I, I became um, just enchanted with this dog and we had an instant bond. I had to then go home and I was, it was my last year at university. And I got a job in the Natural History Unit in Bristol, as you know. Uh, and when I went to say goodbye to Mrs. B, she said, I have a present for you. And I said, oh, thank you very much. What is it? And she handed me Peanut's lead. And Aww. she said, and she said, take Peanut with you. I said, I, I can't take Peanut with me. I, you know, I, I've even got a house sorter. And she said, the two of you are meant to be together. Um, take Peanut and take her now. And that really is how Peanut came into my life. That's brilliant. And when she was at the BBC, I know she had her own staff number, didn't she? Well, of course, the next stage is I moved to Bristol, find a house, find a person mad enough to share the house with me. But he, he kept. Uh, snakes and various other animals and I had my dog so we were right there uh, and I got to start to work in this program for Radio 4 called the Natural History Program and I, and I uh, was in and out 
uh, a lot and I just had Peanut with me. She was an incredibly well-behaved dog. She was almost like a, a seeing dog because she would sit under my desk and people used to ask if they could walk her at lunchtime. And when I was down in the studio, she would stay there, et cetera, et cetera. And one day I came in to, through security uh, with the dog and the guy said, where do you think you're going with that dog? And I said, well, this is my dog. She, she comes to work with me. And he says, no, no, dog's not allowed. Um, and I had to bring her home. I was desperately upset by this. I went into my boss and I sat down and I said very haughtily, and when I look back now, stupidly, I said, if my dog doesn't come into work, then I am not coming into work. And he said, look, calm down, go in and sit down and, and leave this with me. And of course, I did go in and sit down and thought to myself, how stupid was that? Because I had one of the best jobs in the world, really. Uh, but uh, so every day for about two weeks, I sat on tenderhooks, having to leave Peanut in the house while I was quite often away for long periods of time. And it was, I found it really upsetting. And I was even at the stage of contemplating, um, I was going to have to bring her back to Mrs. B or give her away. And um, a, a letter arrived from the head of HR for uh, the BBC in Bristol. And he addressed the letter to Peanut, Peanut Keeling. And I opened the letter, obviously. Peanut couldn't read. And he said, I don't think she could read. And the letter, which I still have, read something like, Dear Peanut, we understand that you're having difficulty getting your owner into the building. Having met him once or twice, I can understand why. Uh, that said, uh, I enclose a contract because we believe it's quite therapeutic to have you around. And therefore, we want to... Uh, contract you as the BBC's therapist on a salary of four tins of pedigree chum a month. Um, and, <laughs> and, days they had humor. and so those days they had, they had humor. Uh, there's yeah. another part of the story I'll tell you another time where I stupidly told this story to local radio. And the next day I come in to work and that they literally the UK's press, it must have been a slow news day, were outside the door looking to take photographs of peanut with her own uh, pass and got me into a bit of trouble. But it it was a 15-year relationship that I had with that dog, and I broke my heart and cried for three days when she died. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I mean, we've all got dogs in our lives, or we've been, if we've been lucky enough to have a dog. And mm. yeah, My first dog was called Penny, which was fine until uh, one of my mother's friends was called Penny. <laughs> and I just, I used to say, Penny, get down, get down. <laughs> <laughs> She was a um, she's a, a sheepdog, a Welsh mm -hmm. sheepdog, incredibly intelligent, um, and you know there's definitely an innate thing for herding in in uh, sheepdogs, and probably that was a trait bred by humans, as we were discussing earlier. And yes. um, uh, but she would want to herd the guinea pigs. You know, we had guinea pigs in the garden. Uh, and she'd want to herd them. So anything really, not just and, and humans probably as well. And uh, but I used to have some simple commands. I didn't know I, I the on the local farms. She came from a farm, but. On the local farms, you could see some really spectacular um, work with with uh, farm dogs, you know, with the Welsh sheepdogs, border collies, and they were lots of different whistle commands in in Welsh as well. Some of them, um, and uh, they were obviously doing very complicated things. But I, but I I had a vocabulary of about three or four words, you know, with things like get them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, right. Anyway, have, as, we done, as an, have we done as enough? An well, I think we just need an end. So it's like uh, yeah. 14,000 years later, uh, dogs are firmly entrenched with us and our friends and they live with us. They're, you know, you'd say they were part of the family. 
Um, and it's, do you think it's a journey that's continuing to evolve or, you know, is it going to stay? Well, I live by the sea now and I'm looking out my window at the moment and it's a beautiful part of the village uh, because you come up the main street and then the, you come across the sea and you go over to the Coast Guard and then walk back. And every day, I'd say 50 or so people from the village walk past with their dogs on a lead. And of those 50, I reckon there are at least 20 different breeds of dog. And if you think about the relationship that we now have with dogs, um, uh, individuals or as family members, the dog is walking around, around lovingly, trusting us. It has been bred um, so as to exploit the various characteristics that we like. Um, I did have an encounter quite recently with quite a tough uh, gentleman and quite a tough dog uh, because it was not a pit bull terrier but certainly one of the breeds I think Staffordshire bull terrier which goes towards the pit bull terrier and my own dog wasn't on the lead and while I thought this would be a, a friendly encounter it turned out to be quite the opposite and I and I, I this is wildly um, speculative of me but the dog and its owner were very well matched uh, and I would say that my dog and my owner are very well matched because I am actually a very laid back easy going person and and my dog is the same now. Whether my dog has um my dog breed, which is half Springer, half Labrador, has evolved in the last four or five years around my personality, or whether it whether I have picked that kind of breed uh because um I like its characteristics, you could speculate to for Kingdom Come. But I do notice, and it is said, that people become like their dogs. Uh, or their dogs become like people. And I think there's a lot in that. And I think it's something that we should look into.